Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Chapter 13 of 2 Samuel opens with more of family turmoil in David's reign. Amnon is David's firstborn son. He falls in love with his half-sister. Now, marriage between close relatives was common in royal families um, all the way up through modern times. The idea was you kept power consolidated. The objection that Tamar raises is to being taken sexually before marriage, not to marrying her half-sibling. She actually says, just ask daddy. I'm sure he'll let this happen. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, however, both forbid marriage this close. Now, I think we discussed way back there that some of the rules added back into Leviticus and Deuteronomy may have been composed later. We have learned things that then became rules that were edited into the rule book. So we may have figured out some of these things. Or they may feel that royal families are exempt from that. Amnon actually rapes Tamar, and then he rejects her. And I just have to wonder why. If he wanted her so badly, why he rejects her? Did he resent her struggling against him? Um, Was he appalled that she gives in and doesn't struggle? But whether she fights him the whole time or not, uh, he does force her to do what she doesn't want to do. This is going to establish a struggle between brothers, Amnon and Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother and absolutely does not appreciate what Amnon has done. David doesn't do anything about this when he finds out about it. It's possible that David has guilt over his own sexual sins. I mean, he took another man's wife and had her husband killed when she got pregnant. Can he really be lecturing someone about their feelings? But really, Not only as the king of the country, but as the head of this family, he should have done something. And he probably could have prevented much, if not all, of what happens later if he had. Two years later, um, Amnon would have been convinced that everything was okay because nothing has happened. But Absalom kills him and then flees, runs away for three years. And we see that finally David gets over it. I don't know what he thought was going to happen, that he did nothing about this situation. Uh, My heart goes out to Tamar because nobody seems to be taking her into consideration. Um, Talmay is um, Absalom's mother's father. So Absalom runs to his grandfather, um, and then we see it repeated that Absalom fled in verse 34 and 37. In chapter 14, Joab works to bring Absalom home. 
Um, it may have been that many in the country felt like Absalom was the best choice to be the next king. It's clear that Joab does. So maybe Joab is working to prevent a civil war as a fight for that throne um, on there. Or maybe he just wants to see the family healed and whole. Maybe he feels like it can be better accomplished from the inside. David, however, won't see him. He can come home to the country, but not here. So it means that Absalom would have had very limited social interaction with everyone else as well. And so this goes on for two years. Absalom feels it um, frustrating. We see that Absalom names one of his children after his after her aunt. He names one of his children Tamar. It also is a sign to us that he has not forgotten the dishonor that has happened. Um, and so he uses quite an extreme measure to get Joab's attention. In an agricultural society, burning fields was um, would have been quite an ugly thing to do. Chapter 15, Absalom assesses the tribes. Um, he's traveling and meeting people and figuring out things. He's also undermining his father's authority as he goes. Absalom also appears to have hard feelings at his father. He's questioning his leadership and his judgment. Hebron is where Absalom was born. Um, And so here we are nine years after he has killed Amnon. David flees from Absalom. Um, Now we have a coup going to happen. The situation must have been quite dire for David to run. Um, David has gotten older. Um, it makes you wonder why David didn't know that this was happening. Why was he not paying attention to what Absalom was doing? Why was he not noticing that he was undermining his authority and gaining favor for himself? It may have been that Joab is insulating him from that. David's mercenary forces remain loyal to him at this point, And the Levites we see are preparing for a holy war against Absalom. They gather the ark and get ready to take it into battle. But David sends them back to Jerusalem. He he recognizes that a holy war with a son who um, has a hard feeling, a grudge against him, is not the same thing as a holy war. Verse 23, the Wadi Kidron. Um, this was the boundary of Jerusalem. So when they've passed beyond the Wadi Kidron, they've actually left Jerusalem proper. And from there, they would have ascended the Mount of Olives and down the other side to the Jordan River. Um, Hushai becomes a spy for David. Chapter 16, Mephibosheth appears to side with Absalom, at least according to Ziba. Um, maybe he... Um, plans to challenge Absalom for his grandfather's throne. Um, We're unsure, but Mephibosheth does not seem to be clearly in David's um, camp at this point. Shammai as well curses David. The sentiments appear to be very similar to the ones that Mephibosheth appears to hold, at least from what Ziba tells us. Um, But Shammai apparently supports Absalom. He calls David a scoundrel in verse 7. The literal... Language says man of Belial, which means one who is truly evil. So he's calling David evil. Um, These two stories show us that while David was an immensely popular king, people do react differently to um, 
to his apparent overthrow and that he was not universally liked. There were pockets of people who didn't like David as king. Absalom sleeps with his father's concubines. Remember, that's what um, a former commander was accused of under Ishbael. It is offensive. It is in- incredibly disrespectful. But Absalom does it. He does it in a way by putting a tent on top of the house and doing it that all of Israel would have known what he was doing. Chapter 17, Ahithophel advises killing David stealthily and immediately, like, let's sneak in there and kill him. We can end this whole thing right now. Once the king is dead, there'll have to be another king. It would um, be you because you're challenging him at this point. Hushai, who is a spy for David, disagrees with that, and his, um, his advice is taken. He then warns David to flee from what is about to happen. By having his advice rejected, Ahithophel feels rejected himself. He commits suicide. Um, he he will, not, will not continue to be there if he's not going to have his advice taken. In verse 25, we see that the army of Israel needs a new commander since Joab has left with David. Some, some flee with David, but the whole army has not. But since Joab did, they're going to need um, a leader. Uh, Absalom appoints Amasa, who is a relative of Joab, um, to lead them since he's kind of taken over control of them with this. And that would be adding insult to injury um, to put one of his relatives over the troops that he used to command. Verse 24, Manahem is the same city to which Ishbael had fled to establish his authority. So the author is showing that David is now acting like Ishbael had when Saul's family lost the throne. So for a moment here, David is portrayed as the one who is usurping the power that has been taken over. Power, control, reigns become very complicated. Things become twisted. It's not all black and white. Chapter 18, David has to answer Absalom's challenge, but he doesn't want him killed. Um, I, he's my son. We have to put down this coup, but don't kill him. Joab, however, understands the danger of letting a person who has incited a riot and a takeover, an insurrection, live. Um, Absalom suffers an accident. It's quite likely that his hair, which has been mentioned earlier in the stories, um, entangles him in a tree. Um, John Wesley believed with many other scholars, that he is, in, he's in fact, snagged by his hair um, based on what's said in chapter 14, verse 26. But finding him hanging there in the tree, Joab kills him. Um, interesting that Absalom's vanity might be his downfall there. David, however, mourns for his son. Um, he, he did love his son. I think he loved all of his children, even though there are certainly issues within the family. Chapter 19, Joab scolds David for mourning. As a commander, he could have made the threat that he gives to David, the whole country is going to turn against you if you don't stop this weeping and mourning. Absalom was trying to overthrow you as king. For you to mourn is an insult to the people. Get up and act like a victorious king. They fought for you. People died for you. To you be in here crying when they won, is an insult to all of them. Um, And Joab probably could have 
turned the country against him. They won, and David needed to act like it. And so David takes the advice, and he does that. David needs the support of Israel. He needs Israel and Judah to be on his side. Um, Otherwise, his return to Jerusalem would have been unsuccessful. Um, He asks Amasa to lead, um, which would further squelch um, future coup attempts um, against his throne. Joab's not going to be a fan of that. He shows mercy to Shimei, um, who cursed him as they were leaving. They're all, um, he doesn't want everyone to die for this. Um, he's not going to kill everyone who is a part of the coup. He's going to realize that some people were, were caught up in this. Okay, so then we have Mephibosheth, which we said Ziba portrays as having chosen to throw his support behind Absalom. Um, Mephibosheth here. Um, his physical appearance matches the story that he's telling, that things have not been well, things are not all right, and that he supports David. David is going to relent somewhat. He seems to have lingering. Um, he wonders if it's all true. He's not sure who to believe. He's given all of Meshibaphes' possessions and property to Ziba. Now he's going to split it half and half. So that tells me he's not fully convinced. If he were fully convinced, Ziba should have been killed for lying about Mephibosheth. We see that tribal tensions are fierce. The country is once again going to be united, but we see that the uniting is not thorough. It's not all the way to the core of their being. This has been a divided kingdom. It's also interesting that David makes no attempt to resolve these tribal tensions. Perhaps it serves him to have um, the tension there. He, he feels like he might could use it, or maybe he just, Judah or his people and Israel's not, and he's happy to let the others, they can like it or lump it. In chapter 20, um, Sheba stages a rebellion. Again, we have this word scoundrel or evil one, son of Belial. Um, he's trying to become king of Israel, and that has to be put down. The ten concubines that Absalom slept with, David is never going to go into again. He provides for them, but he never treats them, never sleeps with them again. Joab is going to eliminate his rival, and a left-handed attack would have been unsuspected. In that culture, your right hand was your honorable hand, the one you would have eaten with, wielded your weapon with. A left hand was the one you would have um, wiped your hind end with when you went to the bathroom and was the hand that wasn't used so much, and it was rare to have a left-handed person. Um, so you wouldn't have been expecting that. But the whole time, he has been suspicious of Amasa, and when he stabs him, he disembowels him. But he's not entirely dead, and he just leaves him there dying on the side of the road. Um, and it, people are looking. It's causing a scene. So Joab drags him into the field and throws a blanket over him. Um, it's not a very pretty picture. It's pretty brutal here. Um, but Amasa's men, they now swap their loyalty over and follow Joab. Um, and we have an unnamed wise woman who offers up Sheba's head in order to save her city. Um, she says, all right, I, I can fix this. 
And so that's what she does, and the rebellion is quelled. I hate that we don't know the name of this um, brave woman. Chapters 21 through 24 are the concluding narratives. Um, The events here really would fit better in the timeline occurring before Absalom's rebellion. Perhaps they were a separate literary unit that are put here at the end, just appended rather than inserted, because it would have interrupted the flow of the the former narrative. But they really do appear to fit earlier. Um, Chapter 21, verse 1 may connect to 2 Samuel 4, 3. Um, If this happened earlier, it would explain how David removed rivals um, and why Shimei felt as he did about David, because David had been ruthless. There are two Mephibosheths. Um, take note of that. One is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is, has the injured feet in verse 7. There's another one that would have been Jonathan's uncle that is mentioned in verse 8. So there are two people. Merib has originally been promised to David. This was way back in the early narrative um, where Saul promises David a, a wife, was going to bring him into the family and use that. She's been given to someone else. Um, now David is going to kill the five sons of the woman he was originally supposed to marry. So her sons from her alternate union are going to die. Barley is harvested in April, um, so when when this concubine is out there protecting these bodies, um, and it says she stayed until the rain fell, she stayed from April to late fall, early winter, so months that she protects these bodies. And so David is finally moved by Rizpah's devotion and gives them the proper burial. Um, See 1 Samuel 31 for a little more on these kinds of things. David accompanies his soldiers. um, Here argues for an earlier date to this portion of the narrative because he would have been younger. We know that by later in the narrative when he has to flee, he's no longer accompanying the troops. Here we have the people called giants. The Hebrew word for giants is related to the rephaim, R-E-P-H-A-I-M, which is a word for spirits or giants. There were different categories of angelic or created heavenly beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the rephaim. Um, Genesis 14.5 and 15.20 talk about the rephaim, which were a, a race of large people who occupied the land from the Nile to the Euphrates rivers. Early in Genesis, it talks about angels um, mating with human women and that creating a race of giants. And that may be what we have. Inbreeding and genetic mutations may have caused some um, overgrowth. Um, we still have this as a disease that happens in our culture that some people, their growth hormone doesn't get turned off and so they become exceedingly large. This may have been something that happened um, within this race of people. Chapter 21, verse 19 says, Elhanan kills Goliath. First uh, Samuel 17 says that David kills an unnamed Philistine that later gets named Goliath. Have the stories been mixed, 
Or could Elhanan be another name for David? Many of the characters have more than one name. Um, Elhanan may have killed a brother of Goliath, as First Chronicles 20 verse 5 says. So the stories that get passed down through oral transit tra- tradition have a few different um, shades and details to them. And so the way the stories all come together sometimes doesn't fit seamlessly. Chapter 22 is almost identical to Psalm 18. There are some variations, though. It may be that what we have here in 2 Samuel 22 was David's composition for his own prayer closet. And then it was altered slightly to be used in public worship, which is what we have in the book of Psalms. Chapter 22, verse 7 is another anachronism. The temple has not yet been constructed, so this would have referred to the tent of meeting. Verse 20, verse 32 refers to God as L, and then Lord, Lord should be in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the proper name of God or Yahweh. They called it the Tetragrammaton, and the Jewish people didn't pronounce it there. So he's saying that God is our God. Our God is the only God, the one true living God. Chapter 23, we have the final declarations of David. He's called an oracle, and that's the Hebrew word used elsewhere only in reference to the Lord and to Baal to a pagan god in Numbers 23 and 24. Here it's used to portray David as a prophetic figure. Um, He has truly blurred the lines between priest, prophet, and king. Verses 8 through 39 are David's hall of fame, his list of warriors. You can also see this list in 1 Chronicles 11, verses 10 through 47. Joab is mentioned only as a brother, in verse 18, Benaniah is going to be important in Solomon's early reign. So remember that name. That will come back to us in 1 Kings um, chapter 1, verse 38. Snowfall is unusual. It mentions one of them chasing a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Snow is unusual, not unheard of, but unusual. Uriah is listed last. Uh, Bathsheba's husband, the very last name that appears there, and it almost is punctuation to remind us of the story that we know. In chapter 24, uh, we see this reflected in 1 Chronicles 21, which gives Satan credit for inciting David to take a census. Um, Here, um, God does it. So the focus here in 2 Samuel is on the sovereignty of God, um, the focus in First Chronicles is going to be to not condemn David's actions. He's treated a little more kindly, with a little more kid gloves in Chronicles than here. When it refers to Dan to Beersheba, that's referring to the north to south boundaries of the country. And Joab, as he makes this journey counting the people, he goes east, north, west, south, and back to Jerusalem. So he goes in a counterclockwise measure. The numbers given for the census in 24 verse 9 differ from the numbers of this census that are reported in 1 Chronicles 21. Here it says there were 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. 
Chronicle says there was 1,100,000 in Israel and 470,000 in Judah. So here, Israel and Judah are a little closer in size, so though there's a marked difference. In Chronicles, Israel is much larger, more than twice as large as Judah. Notice that they count them separately. This tells us once again, the country is not fully united. They see, still see themselves with division. The reason why this census is a sin is not specified. Um, is it because David is showing pride in his accomplishments? Is he counting for taxation purposes, which might not be what God wants? Um, we don't really have enough to understand the reason why it is sin, but it is sin. David's given a choice of consequences, and he chooses three days of pestilence, and 70,000 people are going to die in this. Um, he goes to to set up an altar and make an offering at the threshing floor, and he, he's going to purchase it. This tactic of, I'll, I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you, my king, um, is an ancient bargaining tactic that's happening here. In First Chronicles 21, it says the purchase price is 600 shekels. Here it says the purchase price is 50 shekels. Um, so how do we reconcile the difference? Here it makes it seem like David gets a much better deal, that he has taken the land and compensated the owner very little. Chronicles by the higher price would mean he paid dearly. Uh, he paid full value for the land. There are those who want to reconcile this by saying he paid 50 shekels for the threshing floor itself and 600 shekels for the surrounding land that would have been enough to have built a temple on. Um, we don't really know the answer to that. So here we have arrived at the very end of the book of Second Samuel's. The story will continue in First Kings.